Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Earn 20% profit on your next project. We will show you how. Download our free course. It's free. Our free course, Profit for Small Firm Architects, right now at entrearchitect.com slash free course. My name is Mark R. LePage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 229, and this week I'm speaking with an architect, writer, podcaster, and so much more. He does so much more, Duo Dickinson, and we're speaking about artificial intelligence and the future of architecture. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM, specifications, and much more at RCAT.com, FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. Spend less time on accounting and more time doing the work that you love. And Gusto. Gusto is making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. Modern technology does the heavy lifting, so it's easy to get things right. Duo Dickinson, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thanks a lot for having me. It's great having you here. Let me uh, introduce you to our audience here. Graduating from Cornell University in 1977, Duo Dickinson opened his own practice in 1987. Duo currently sits on five not-for-profit boards, and about 20 to 30% of the work at his office is dedicated to pro bono or at-cost work for not-for-profits, totaling over 150 projects 
for over 30 organizations over the past 30 years. His work has received more than 30 regional and national design awards, and he's recently elevated to fellow at the American Institute of Architects. His design work has been published in more than 70 publications, including the New York Times, Architectural Record, and House Beautiful. He is the architectural critic for the New Haven Register and is a feature writer at the Hartford Current Media Group. His blog, Saved by Design, has received over 75,000 views and is growing, and he has written eight books. His latest book, A Home Called New England with Steve Culpepper, was just published just this past November. Additionally, on top of all of that, he hosts a radio series homepage on WPKN Radio in Connecticut. Uh, He's the co-founder of the Congress of Residential Architecture, also known as CORA. Uh, He's taught at Yale College and my alma mater, Roger Williams University in Bristol, Rhode Island. He's currently on the faculty of Building Beauty, Ecologic Design, and Construction Process at Santa Ana Institute in Sorrento, Italy, as well as their co-chair of their American Advisory Board. So, Mr. Dickinson, you are one busy man, doing a lot of things. Really having, here. <laughs> a, yeah. a lot of influence on the profession, uh, getting a lot of content out there. And so I love having you here. Um, I want to know a little bit more about you and where you came from. And so mm-hmm. let's dive into your origin story. Go back to where you discovered architecture and what inspired you to become an architect and give us a, a story from that point to where you find yourself today. Well, I, I grew up not far from where you are now in Westchester County, uh, really a madman upbringing. I'm older than you, so so my parents were of the greatest generation. And uh, they, for whatever reason parents did in those days, shipped me up to Buffalo, New York for high school, where I played football and, and was, an, was an okay student. And um, at one point, because I was quite um, driven, I said, well, I've my favorite things to do are history and English. So I should figure, figure that out. And I qualified to be part of the university of Buffalo's summer program for high school students, where I took two senior level courses, one in history and one in, in English and loved them. It was one of the great summers ever because I was working out like a madman to play football and I was taking these courses and it was really quite wonderful. And I got along very well with the professors. They were really interesting people. And I asked them pretty directly, you know, uh, this is after my junior year of high school, so I was maybe 16 years old. I said, if I were to take this, which was either English or history, to its highest level, what would I be doing? And they both said the same thing. They said, well, you, you get a PhD. You go, you, you hopefully get a job at university. If you, if you were okay and, did, and you were published and did stuff, you, you would end up having a job where you would be teaching or advising other PhD students. And I would go, so in other words, I would get a PhD to make more PhDs. <laughs> and basically said yes. And I just, that just was a total buzzkill for me. And I went, no, I can't do that. Especially at 16. It's like, mm, that's not the rest of my life. No, and not only that, you know, I was kind of crushing it on the football field and I was very active in a lot of things. And, and I'm going like, you know, I can't st- I just couldn't do this non-productive, non-end result thing, a process thing, not a product thing. And I, I, um, was lying in bed and I looked at my library as I was, you know, in the moonlight, I'm looking at the li- library and the library basically had a lot of architecture stuff in there. And I said, well, you know, when I went to sleep at night, really my whole life, I've thought about how a chair gets made or a roof gets put on 
you know, when I was 16, I was thinking this way. I said, oh, okay, so I'll, I'll go to architecture school. And so back then, you know, the Bachelor of Architecture degree uh, was the was it that was the that was the the professional degree and you know the masters was for uh teaching people well now you know there'll never be a new school that offers a bachelor of architecture degree now it's it's all about masters and some people are saying that the professional degree should be a phd so it's it's it i just went to cornell because it was the best school in the country and uh and i got out in four and a half years because i had no money so i doubled up and then I went and deep sea scallop fished for a few a few tours to pay off my academic debts. And then I wrote four or five uh, architects across the country, and one of them said yes. And I went to work for Louis Makel in um, Guilford, Connecticut, but struck up a great and abiding friendship with Turner Brooks and also Antoine Predock. And um, uh, there was another guy who was really nice and. So it's been a, it, you know, it's been over, it's been 40 years really since I sort of jumped in and uh, licensed as soon as I could possibly be licensed. So I've been licensed for, I think, 35 years and or more and had my own firm for about 31 years. So it's, and I'm a building guy. So we've built over 800 things and um, in about 20 states, budgets from, you know, 100 bucks a foot to a thousand bucks a foot and for very wealthy people and for people that have literally zero money. So it's, it's, if there's one thing I would leave you with in that, and that would be the priority of bandwidth of multivalent, uh, polymath practice is to me the highest calling, not the hyper specialized technician or even, um, mercenary approach to architecture. I think basically the, for me, the, the self generating energy comes from the fact of dealing with so many different scenarios and being a part of helping them be better by making things. So it's as diverse as you can get is what you're saying. Well, I've got four or five full-time employees always have when there's a boom I take on a couple more that are kind of contract employees if there's a bust I keep them on and make a lot less money so we you know we've had you know we've we can't we are not big building architects I mean a big job for me I'm starting a job right this on Tuesday that will be perhaps a five or ten million dollar job and that's a huge job for this little firm the we do have over 50 jobs in the office at any given time but that's kind of a canard because of the 50 20 or 30 are active you know five or ten are finishing up in some minute way and five or ten haven't really started yet and uh so it's a and and they range. They used to range uh, back in the boom times a decade ago, where we'd always have three or four very large houses that we were doing. Now we've got one or two, um, and we would have a bunch of smaller projects. But we probably have more smaller projects now. So the average uh, project size has gone way down. The fee has stayed the same. I mean, I basically raised my rates for the first time in 12 years last year. And it was one of those decisions. To, I just sort of had to do it because there was a point at which uh, somebody that worked for me since I billed by the hour was on the verge of being billing out at a higher rate than me. <laughs> so I kind of <laughs> had to go, 
oh my god i, I think i gotta have a higher rate than him i'm older than him so so um it, it's we just work by the hour too i mean for the not-for-profits you work on whatever fixed fee they can get so we don't negotiate fee for them we say you tell us what you can pay us and for the rest we just work by the hour and we keep track of the time and you know so far it's worked out i've made over a thousand payrolls on the building that we're in um never laid anybody off actually you know we we've 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 had to fire some people because they weren't as good as i'd hoped or the fit wasn't as good as i'd hoped but never got that crushing you know cancellation of six jobs in a recession and then had the office meeting that many of us have had or or heard of where you find out that one third of you or half of you or all of you are gone you know so we've avoided that i think by having direct and really personal relationships with all of our clients and a fairly diverse practice that you know is probably more than half residential probably one third uh, not for profit and of that one third that's not for profit um a good half of that is uh religious related to churches and the other part is, is mostly affordable housing and then we've got you know we're doing a commercial building right now and we've done commercial work and institutional work as well so we just finished the marie sendak archive in Ridgefield, Connecticut, which is probably the biggest quote unquote name that I've been involved in. Wow. So, and we're just finished. I mean, a good example of how this bleeds you is that we, we, we did uh, something called the strong center here in Madison, Connecticut, where my son played football on the, on the field, but the field is actually not a field. It's actually a place that's on long Island sound and it faces out over long Island sound. And so somebody had a good idea. Well, if the town can throw a million bucks at this thing, I think we can raise, Two million bucks, and uh, and we'll just build this because somebody said, oh, "I'll give you a million bucks." Well, when the crash happened, that million bucks went away, and the board got together and says, "Should we just do this?" He said, "Yeah, well, it just takes time to do it." So we thought it would take four or five years, and so now at eleven years, we literally are finishing up today, <laughs> <laughs> and it's pretty nice. But it took eleven years, and I got zero dollars so right. you could imagine um that it was quite uh, an investment yeah it's, it's so it's it's a very curious to hear you say that because most of what the the business gurus say is you need to focus you need to have a target market you need to have a a, a, a specific brand yeah. you're you're a you're an example of an a successful entrepreneur architect what you just described is an entrepreneur architect it's running a successful practice very diverse, doing all the different types of work that you want to do with a full staff that you've never laid off. Um, what would you say is is your key to success? Is there is what would you say your brand is when people come to you? What are they coming to you for? Well, you know, this is indefendable, and it's also um, retrograde, and I can't um, justify it. But a, a little bit of it is. Um, like with all creative things, a little bit of a cult of personality. So I wrote my first book in 1983. So I've written eight books and, and, and some of them were actually relatively successful, not like Sarah's Sasanka's book, uh, the, uh, you know, the not so big house, which is, you know, sold a couple million copies. You know, I've sold several books that have had 50 or 60,000, uh, copies sold. But when you do books and you win some awards and you get press, um, you become a little bit of a thing. You become mm -hmm. a little bit of a part of a, a, a larger 
discussion that people have. But as the world has changed and as the media has changed, the books mean almost nothing. And uh, what ends up having worked for me at 62 is actually all the people I've worked with before. So, you know, 90% of the business, I would say, 90% now is by referral, direct referral. Um, whereas 20 years ago, more than half the work was really from the abstract um, promotion of your work via the media. I've never, t I've actually never spent a penny on ads. I get asked by Howes pretty much every week or porch or some other place mm -hmm. or uh, New England um, architecture or whatever it's called, New England design to take out ads. And I never do that. But what we do do is we do sell our services to, uh, at, for silent auctions at not-for-profits do that a great deal. Some of those jobs become real jobs, but what they do is they basically promote the truth that we will work for anyone. It doesn't matter. And it really doesn't matter um, if we end up getting a job. I always go out and, and talk to the people at their place, no matter what it is, and don't charge them a dime because there is also this, um, I think, sad legacy of elitism that allows uh, the profession to isolate itself from the relevance that would come if we were just one of everybody else. Instead, you know, the, the, the line that is always promoted by the AIA, and I did become a member of the AIA because a book was would not have gotten uh, the AIA indicia, and I did sell 10,000 books of that 10, because I was a member of the AIA. Um, and the AA came out, I think, 20 years ago with the idea that architecture is about, quote unquote, innovation. And as a lot of the people that are listening uh, can relate to and uh, uh, a lot of people on in the uh, some of the blogs that I, I talk talk to, uh, there is a weird schism between the sort of um, elite world of academia and media and the people making a living being architects and one is stylistically uh defaulting to you know a high modernist fine arts architecture and the other is a more uh aesthetically relativistic um less concerned with innovation and so you you get labeled if you are a building architect a hack and that you'll do what other people say and that is a, another way of saying it's okay not to build things. And the, the the thing which is getting scary in the profession, it is scary, is the fact that it's becoming perfectly okay for the 5,500, um, sorry, the, sorry, I got that wrong, the 3,500 graduating students who will never get a job in architecture out of the 6,000 that are graduated every year. So 55% of the graduates of architecture school will never get a job in architecture just is a fact stated um, in the January issue of architecture magazine by the AIA's um, economist lauding the fact that we have 2,500 jobs a year for our graduating uh, architecture majors. And of course that means that there are 3,500 that don't have a job in architecture. And he was somehow thinking that was a good thing. And that was also saying that it was, it was really great um, and not taking into the fact that the truth is that with this artificial intelligence uh, revolution that is affecting everybody everywhere, um, the real problem is going to be how many architects are going to be needed in the future. 
I've had an ongoing conversation with Phil Bernstein at Yale, who helped create Autodesk and is extremely intelligent, but is from another side of the world where he basically says, well, of course, architects will learn how to do this, and this, this will mean that they will have careers and everything will be fine. And my take is the opposite is true, that architects will actually think of this as the, as the new CAD monkey. It'll enable small firms like me, instead of having five or six people, to have two or three people. It'll, it'll mean that seven million Americans that don't that go, that look at house now can find the latest and greatest artificial intelligence home design program and not hire even the two percent of architects that end up getting jobs uh, in the, that end up getting two percent of the homes in America that are built have architects the rest do not and so maybe that goes down to one percent you know my hope would be and and I don't know whether anybody knows this would be that it that in that the reverse would be true that that we would have a software that would enable architects to actually expand their sphere of influence by being uh, humanly creative as opposed to artificially simulative of creativity i mean the reality is all artificial intelligence is is a gigantic patchwork quilt of the knowledge we already have there's no new knowledge in bim it's all this knowledge that we have that we've put in that then we are using and making actually quite wonderful and, and actually making better buildings for more people at a cheaper price. And it, uh, there's zero wrong with that. The terror for me, it, it's, and it is a terror not just for architecture, but I think almost worse than any other profession, the terror is that artificial intelligence becomes its own system where you don't even think about hiring an architect to create a warehouse. You go to a, an engineering office, they've got a BIM program, you pick from the catalog of the 17 stylistic things you have and the 47 programmatic layouts that are available and you then apply that to the site and the and the site tech engineer says, well, we're going to have to make this floor smaller and maybe we have this level has to drop and then we have to make the loading dock work this way. And you end up having this problem solving exercise, which is fantastic for many buildings and completely wrong for some buildings for the future of our culture. If, if, if the culture is, it needs to embrace and extend our values and our values become artificial intelligence, then we're, we have the values that we've already had and we're done. And my take is that there's an enormous effort. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's an enormous effort by, I think it's the American classical architecture society, um, I probably have that name wrong. I, I gave a talk for them in DC in November, but, um, the great effort, huge money pushed hard in the media to essentially not rebuild the existing, uh, Pennsylvania station, but to build a brand new Pennsylvania station, but to build an exact and perfect replica of the McKim Mead and white 1903 Penn station and the bizarre, ironic weirdness of artificial intelligence is the given BIM and CNC machines and all the yeah, rest that, that could happen to build the old building with new technology than ever. You know, that's why Calatrava's church is being finished in, uh, in Spain. And that's, and that's why, um, you can have so few architects get new jobs because, even if there's a building boom, fewer of us are needed to make the same stuff than were needed 20 years ago. And my take is that it'll be fewer than the 2,500 
that's being suggested by the AIA now because we there's not going to be more opportunity for humans doing architecture. There'll be less opportunity for humans doing architecture. My hope would be that technology would allow more of us to do more things and charge less money. And But the only way that's going to ever work, and this is what I'd love to talk to you about today, is, is, is for architecture to become relevant to the average person's life, which today it is only in reaction, not in control. Everybody says, what a beautiful house. I had on my uh, my radio show, I had Kate Wagner, and she wrote, uh, she she created two years ago, just two years ago, the McMansion Hell blog. Yep. And it has captured people's imagination almost like nothing else in design or architecture because it, it crystallizes and articulates the extreme overblown narcissism and terror, terrified uh, uh, gigantism of an uninformed, not creative agglomeration of hopes and dreams that people have because they look at sites like house and say, I want that window and I want that window next to that kitchen. And that entry is good too. And you end up stitching a project together, much like the uh, wonderful cover that progressive architecture had that was decrying the same thing when there used to be a progressive architecture magazine over 20 years ago. So nothing really has changed, but now with artificial intelligence, that mentality of the cut and paste yeah. 2% of the American homes now ends up being on steroids, like on steroids that are really good steroids. Yeah, so without a doubt. Yeah, I, the, 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 that's, the that, that's coming, without a doubt. But then there's nothing going to stop it. The fact that yep. uh, AI is coming uh, and faster than we think it's coming. Um, to look at what the big developers are doing now, and building those those types of houses, as soon as they have the access to the technology to be able to 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 build more of those, to build them faster, mm -hmm. to build them bigger, to build them, you know, clip art without any sort of design, without having to spend any money on design, responding directly to the market and what the market yep. says they want, um, that will just exponentially grow. So so the question is 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 architecture dead? What do we do to the only way you're going to stop that? from not happening is to regulate it so it can happen. But that's not the answer. The answer is that, that will be unsustainable. Right. So so that technology is going to happen. And so so there will always be buildings that require uh, an architect's design to be input, right? You need some sort of um, creativity. Someday, maybe, if we can, if we continue thinking on this level, maybe AI also starts becoming creative. But that's way in the future, I think. Um, what, what do we do in the meantime, while the, the, the warehouses obviously are going to be designed this way and the buildings that don't really need design are going to be designed this way. But what about the houses and what about the municipal buildings? What about the buildings that really create the, the downtowns of our, of our societies? What, how do we stay relevant as architects to be able to still have control over how those buildings get designed? Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect. We could not do this without them. RCAT, FreshBooks, and Gusto. RCAT is always developing solutions for architects and the professionals who support them. And just a few weeks ago at the AIA Conference on Architecture in New York City, they revealed 
Biminit. Biminit is a plugin for Revit that allows you to access Arcat.com's huge library of free BIM objects, families, and system files without ever leaving Revit. Did you hear me say that? Without ever leaving Revit, search for specific products, configure them, and load them into your project all in the same window. Go check out Arcat.com's BIM section today. Why leave Revit when there's BIM in it? Visit entrearchitect.com slash RCAT and click the BIM menu right up at the top and start using Biminit by RCAT on your next project. That's entrearchitect.com slash RCAT and go check out Biminit. FreshBooks makes it simple to send invoices, post your expenses automatically, track your time for your whole team, buy project, and get organized with reports, communication, and notifications. And getting started with FreshBooks is ridiculously easy. Most people send their first invoice seconds after starting their free trial. The same goes for tracking time, managing expenses, collaborating with contractors, and viewing financial reports. Fast, easy, maybe even life-changing. And if you need help at any time, free award-winning customer service is just a phone call or an email away. And if you have ever had second thoughts, don't worry. On top of our free trial for Entree Architect listeners, you get a 30-day money-back guarantee so you don't ever have to worry about choosing FreshBooks. So give FreshBooks a try. It's free for 30 days. Just visit EntreeArchitect.com slash FreshBooks and then let them know that we sent you by sharing Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's EntreeArchitect.com slash FreshBooks access your free 30-day trial today. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially when you're a small business. You don't have time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations, and old-school payroll providers just aren't built for the way that we work today. Gusto is making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. Modern technology does the heavy lifting, so it's easy for you to get it right. No longer do you have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service for your team. And to help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. Sign up today and you'll get three months free. Once you run a first payroll, three months free. Just go to entrearchitect.com gusto. That is entrearchitect.com gusto, G-U-S-T-O, and claim your free three months of payroll processing today. RCAT, FreshBooks, and Gusto. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. I can tell you the way that it will not work because it's the way it's working now. Um, and that's not working because we, we are not in the forefront of people's minds mm-hmm. in their day-to-day lives we're, we're in the forefront of a media's mind in terms of what they laud and what competitions are done and what you see on certain websites and, on, and in magazines. You see these really cool, great buildings, but it's, a, it's an object-focused uh, reality, which is quite traditional in the way architecture has been focused, where, where to me the future lies is counterintuitive to that. And I can only tell you that 
you have to kind of almost look at the places that experience more radical failure because of economic change. And I've had some success in resurging parts of their cultural lives in a way which I would call uh, human validation, meaning that you we've done a fair amount of work in Vermont, know Vermont pretty well. Vermont is one of my best friends is a state senator there for the last 15 years. Um, I, I, the one week off I take every year, whether I need it or not, the one week I do not work, I, I, I am in Vermont uh, at, a, at a wonderful place. And um, I can tell you that for the first time, well, since before World War II, for the first time, uh, agriculture in Vermont has had an uptick and it had an uptick, not because they invented a new food or had a better factory or produced a cheaper thing. They just simply made a product that integrated with people's values in a way that made it desirable. It's straight, it's, it's straight capitalism. The fact that if you make something that people want, they will use it. The truth is that the missing element of the most built thing actually in the world is the American home. We build now almost a million individual homes a year, 880,000 and goes up and it goes down. The worst year was 300,000. The best year was almost 3 million. When you think about it, there's no other industry on the planet where the min is one and the max is 10. That's an enormously bizarre dynamic thing. It would be as if in, a, in the bus times, nine out of 10 factories would close, nine out of 10 supermarkets would go away. No, no, it's, but because of that volatility, it shows you the level of desire that even in the worst of times, you're still building 300,000 things. Of those 300,000 things, you know, whereas once architects were involved directly, well, let me put it the other way, 14% of architects listed in the firm surveys for in 2006 and seven, 14% of architects said residential work is 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 at is one of the hearts of our practice, not just a house, but it's part of how we based our firm. Now that's down to six or seven percent, which is where where it has been for a long time before that. But still, it that cut the number of architects working on homes as a predominant element of their career by half, half. My take is that's because we were operating on an object basis. I think if you operate on a human basis, and the way I think you do that, for me anyway, the way you do that, is that you do the work for humans that is required that has no fee, meaning there's no money to pay an architect to do a habitat house. And I've done 85 habitat houses for Habitat New Haven for the last 25 years for free, working not as a genius architect, but working with other people to figure stuff out, losing the idea of saving the world with some stair rail detail, but working to make it work for the volunteers and for the the, 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 the situations and the pockets that you're making stuff in. If you can prove relevance to the least of us, you'll prove relevance for the rest of us. And that relevance, that meaning of having good food in Vermont or having a home you love anywhere, whether it's a renovated home, whether it's even just a new window in a home, belies the the tradition 
where architects have viewed homes really in two ways. They viewed, they viewed it as either a stepping stone to quote unquote real work, as a guy said 25 years ago in a building bust in the AIA journal here in, in, in Connecticut. Homes, he said, I found that homes are actually good work to have until you get real work. And then, then um, the other thing is to say that wonderfully, that wonderful phrase, I think it was for, for Michael Graves who said, uh, oh, in my office, I've got I've got uh, a, a wonderful residential porch design and some smaller projects. And the, the idea would, what, is that I can't even begin to think of architecture as anything other than being a doctor, that if somebody shows up in the emergency room with a cut and it's one inch and not two inches long, I will not sew it up because why would I do that? It's only one inch long and we only take two inch cuts or, or longer. Architects have had the same thing. They've had this essential um, bias against cheap projects, against projects for people that have no aesthetic desires, that only want to do problem solving, uh, projects that are are important but have no aesthetic upside whatsoever, even projects that have really no fee upside whatsoever. Whereas if you talk to a doctor or a lawyer, even some engineers, of course they do pro bono work. Of course they do projects they know they're never going to get paid for because they have a ethic which says, I am here to serve humans. I'm not here to serve myself. And the and the the big disconnect in architecture has been, and it was it was when I was at Cornell, which was, you know, like I said, very much saying to the world, we are the best architecture school in the world, and they all believed it, um, is that we do not want to have anything to do with the popular culture. We want to be the people that lead all culture and then are imitated afterward by the popular culture. So we cannot be relevant. If we're relevant, then we are not doing our job. And so what ends up happening is that architects end up designing for other architects. They do not design for the people they're designing for. And since the in creation of photography, and there's several wonderful books that have been made about this, that since the world of architectural photography happened in the 20s and 30s, architecture changed so that, you know, whereas before you would make something like a cathedral and you kind of know what it was and you know what kind of the spaces are. And it was in, in, the, in the best sense of the word, it was called traditional because it was really based on what you knew. When architecture began to become based on the photographs that hadn't happened yet, the idea that you would design to the angle, to the to the picturesque, uh, compelling quality of modern architectural photography, something happened and it took us as a group to a cultural place much more akin to the fine artist, the painter, the sculptor, uh, the solo violin player, the actor, who is more than happy to work for free because that's really where the market was, but was also more than happy to have no one use them rather than do something they would consider to despoil their perfect sense of what the future is going to be. Well, that really wouldn't work for a doctor. That really wouldn't work for a lawyer. I think we're much, we should be much more like clerics, like rabbis or, or priests. We need to actually connect people with what they value, with whatever knowledge and skill we have, rather than show people the way they should be by letting us do what we want to do. When hypocrisy happens, it's because 
you have disconnected where your values are from reality. And the reality for most people is they use buildings every day. The vast majority of buildings have no need or functional benefit to being innovative or beautiful. But at the same time, humans really want them to be cool, interesting, delightful, efficient. The idea that you would spend more money on a house than you would ever spend on any other object in your entire life, have more worth in that house and have more liability in that house and not hire somebody with a level of expertise as the lawyer you hire to do your will or the doctor you go to when you have the flu is insanity. It makes no sense. And it's not the buyer's fault. It's the seller's fault. We have not proven by our works that we are relevant to people. We have proven that we're very relevant to other architects. And that's a real problem unless you want to be the first violin uh, soloist for the Metropolitan. Because the truth is, you know, those sorts of architects should be there. There's nothing wrong with the Starkitect model of doing incredibly cool and fabulous work. That represents two, five percent of our entire uh, architecture world of of practitioners. But the reality is you can be a, a really great architect and still work with humans. You just need an attitude adjustment to say your clients aren't cash machines for your ideas. Your clients are for a brief period of time your partner. They're who you care about. It's it's. There's a level of responsibility involved that is, to me anyway, is the reason why I've been doing this for 40 years. It's because you become part of deeply, deeply meaningful scenarios for people that are typically very committed to doing the right thing. Now, we've worked for people that have endeavored to create a legacy by making something which is unnecessary for them. And we we actually have designed the largest house in Madison, Connecticut. Um for a family of four. Now, you couldn't prove to them that they they didn't want that, but because that 10,000 square foot house is about two or 3,000 square feet smaller than it could have been, that's probably where I came in, in. And because it's been now through three or four hurricanes with zero damage, that probably is also due to me and the engineer. But the fact that it looks pretty great really is because they had somebody like me involved. And it really does look pretty great. It's, But I will tell you, it'll never get published anywhere. No other architect will ever see it. It's, it's, it is basically one of these very cool, idiosyncratic, New England-y kind of homes that is delightful and interesting and actually compelling in some respects, but doesn't serve the purpose of the architectural photographer or the website or the lecturer or the architect who is teaching because they don't know how to build anything. So it, it, those things are what AI is going to call the question on because the architects who don't build anything will not be as good at making buildings as artificial intelligence. And that will mean that either you will still have you know, 3,500 people that want to have Two hundred or $300,000 worth of academic investment and then become a real estate broker or a uh, car salesman, you either want to do that 
or you let the profession attrit to go down to the two or 3,000 jobs that might be there, or my hope, please, would be that the entire profession looks at itself differently and says, wait a minute, this thing will let me do more things with more people. I just have to start thinking about more people than architects. And, and that's why I didn't belong to the AA for 25 years, because the truth is when you have architects talking just to architects, you get, you get that level of self-serving, which remotes you from the future of our culture. And you can see that also in government and you can see that in, um, many other aspects of our lives, politics and, and religion, the minute you dissociate yourself from the core human realities that everybody experiences, you become then a niche that essentially feeds on its own value system. And to me, that's the short ticket to architecture simply becoming a vestige. Yeah, I, I think that your model that you described with your firm that you talked, you said you, you built your cult of personality, but that's what the reason you're successful is because you, you worked really hard up front. You said a lot of it now is referral, yeah. but, it, but it, but it came from years and years and decades of grinding, of working hard and getting your name out there and yeah. writing books and getting published and being, being a speaker and uh, being a leader and creating organizations and getting out there and doing what needs to be done to get noticed. You've created a brand around Duo Dickinson by doing that, and now you're reaping the rewards of that. And well, I guess you know it would be one thing if, if there were any financial rewards. I mean, the real the real downside of this is that um, if you walk the talk of my model, you make very little money, uh, and and that's just the truth. Because, and this is one of the reasons why Phil Bernstein and I have a disagreement. The reality is most people not built, not corporations, not institutions. Most people do not hire architects because we are too expensive. The only way to make that change is by either artificial intelligence, please, I hope this is true, or you say, well, let me just talk to you and I will, I'll do this, I'll, I'll give you advice and maybe even show you something you could do. I won't take any responsibility for it, but I'll show you what an architect can do. That does work for many, but it doesn't work for everyone. And most people don't even know you could do that. So it's, it, you know, the, the, the model of the cult of personality is, is, is probably true, but let me, there's one other story, which is also true, which is that, uh, in 1994, uh, I, I, my work and me was on the cover of the New York times home section magazine. It just was, it was, it was the Thursday issue. And it was this incredibly great piece that focused on three or four of our projects all over uh, the, the Northeast. The author and I got along really well. We spent a lot of time together. And the article was like, this is really interesting stuff. Well, we got phone calls for 10 years. This is back when you had phone calls before the internet. Yep. 10 years. We got, we had 700 phone calls. We got, we netted 40, 40, 40 jobs directly. And I have not done the calculation, but it's got to be a hundred or two hundred jobs from doing those other those first right. jobs for those people, because they saw something in that article that said to them, "Wait a minute, an architect can actually do this. He'll actually listen. He'll talk with me. Um, he's actually a human being. He's not talking about concepts. He's talking about 
how I live? Well, those things that made Sarah Sasanka's book so successful, those things that make House have, you know, what, three million hits a week, those those points of personal relevancy should not be simulative or even, you know, gratuitously kind of um, pornographic, you know, house porny kind of stuff. They really need to show the idea that people can control their lives better if they invest time and money with somebody that knows about building things. But the problem is we have to show people that we know how to build things. Right. And right. I think you agree that a lot of people that call themselves architects have never toenailed a wall in their entire life and never could and never will. And I think that's a little bit like having the sports announcer that's that's literally never picked up a baseball bat be talking at great depth about what's wrong with the hitter. And sure, they know the abstract uh, realities of baseball. But if you've never played baseball, it's pretty hard to have credibility. You may sound good. It might enhance the view of other people that have never played baseball as they watch something. But the truth is that's voyeuristic. It's not participative. And the idea that you could actually have architects out there, and this is why I'm involved in the Building Beauty program um, in Sorrento, Italy. If you can have architects out there that know how to make things, that see the actual act of making things part of the power of making beauty and acknowledge the fact that beauty is the reason they are architects – if you if you do that, the paradigm shift happens and you know, you don't become somebody that's a self promoter. You are a facilitator of the beauty that's in every single person, site and thing. But you're the channeler of that. You are the person that facilitates that. You aren't the controller of that. If you want to give up the role of I'd rather build nothing than build something that I, I couldn't uh, love with all of my heart. Well, you're probably not going to change the paradigm. If the paradigm is there's beauty in everything and I'm here to help make that beauty. And the reason I'm here to make to help make that beauty is I kind of know how to make things. So in the making of it, I can make it more beautiful, especially for the person who is going to end up serving. Well, that changes the paradigm. Then the act of making becomes part of it versus the act of acquiring. And, so, and today we have we have the tools to make that so much easier. You're, you're talking about basically storytelling. What, what do architects do? How can architects make your life better? And today, you did it with books and magazines and, yep. and, and newspapers. Today, we have Facebook and Instagram and, and um, Twitter and uh, blog, blog um, internet sites, websites. You can build a platform that, that teaches the world what we do. And if we all do that as a community because the entre architect community are, are individuals. If we're all doing that uh, and creating our own platforms, teaching the world what we do and why we're different and why AI is not going to replace us because this is the, what we're doing. This is how we build. This is how we design. This is the creativity we bring to the world. This is how we make the world a better place. Um, and this is how we're different than what AI is going to create. That story replicated over and over and over and over again, hundreds of thousands of times throughout the world we can change the way the story is being told about architects, and we can I, make a difference. I agree. I do think I, I think the impediment, though, and, and this is this is the conundrum. It would be one thing if you could actually say um, the great Satan is this, and we must work against mm -hmm. it. This is a battle. Yep. Well, there is no great Satan. The, Correct, I mean, right. the enemy is us. The, basically, the enemy 
is the best thing about us is the worst thing about us. The fact that we are these typically know-it-all kind of can-do positive egomaniacs. And believe me, I am one. So this is nothing that I can defend or laud or anything. It's just a fact that in a given situation, if I see something that should happen, I will be enough of a jerk to say, well, why don't we do that? And that's pretty much the persona of most designers of anything, whether they're architects or not, or whatever it is. And the truth is that thing has been channeled by the way we are taught into a performance art, which involves object creation. And you almost have to do that to teach, but there's got to be a second level of teaching. These kids that go in have to learn how to design the stuff, but there has to be not a, isn't it cool we're building a house for the homeless at uh, Yale University in the building program with a great guy named Alan Organsky, and that is fantastic, and Alan is fantastic. But a lot of these kids have to be told pretty directly, unless you know how to make something, then you're a poser. Then you are as shallow as the two dimensions on your screen. And you either want to make something or you're going to be dealing in a two-dimensional life. If you want to have a three-dimensional life, if you want to be a polymath, actually act like someone that eats, listens, runs, uh, goes to meet other people and talk, to have a rich cultural basis for all of your activity, if you want to actually present yourself as a full human being versus just a designer with cool glasses and nice shoes, if you want to do that, it takes far more time. It takes far more humility. It takes much failure. It actually takes harder lessons than simply cruising and being part of an elite and when somebody doesn't use you or want you or value you, well, they're fools. And so you can dismiss them. And so that ends up being, I think, hard for architects. And I think, to be honest, it's been um, a mixed bad thing, the recession. And it's only mixed because this recession is mostly still with us. The 10-year popping of that bubble mm -hmm. in, in uh, 2008 that popular bubble crushed a bunch of firms, killed a lot of jobs, wrecked a lot of lives. But it did put an end, not only to the Congress of Residential Architecture, which is really quite vestigial now, um, it, it did put an end to the presumption that you could essentially design your way into a new place. And that's just not true. I think what you have to end up doing is live your way to a place where design will make it better. And that's the trick with artificial intelligence, because the truth is it's either going to be about design or it's going to really be about picking things. And there's a difference. You either got to suspend judgment, let things sort of happen based on preference models, or you're going to say, no, I want 17B, just like on that image on house. I want to get that. I want to click on that. I want to buy that from Amazon, and it's going to come next week. I will almost guarantee you that I'm going to be dead sooner than you. But by the time I am dead, there will be an Amazon house, and you'll be able to go to Amazon. Oh, no doubt. For a bunch of things. You'll click a button and some subs and some, and some 3D printers and some other stuff in three months. For a fixed number, you're going to have a house. 
guaranteed because that's and and you will never really have to deal with a human being you'll have some version of a credit card or a an account somewhere with bitcoiny kind of stuff in it and you'll just have this house like you have a new suit and you'll be fine with it and it'll be good for you well that's going to happen and you know, maybe that takes 10% 20% off the cost of a house that's g- great but that will work Maybe not for 98% of the people that it's working for now, but maybe that'll work for 20 or 30 or 40% of the people working there now. But maybe, maybe that extremity of antiseptic creation or antiseptic provision of an object, maybe that validates the power of design and creativity as it has in a fairly depressed state of Vermont where you don't have a lot of economic activity you have more people spending on artisanal things with less money because they are sensing that they only have one life to live. They want to love what they have. Part of what loving what they have is they want stuff that they understand, know, and actually sometimes help in the creation of. And so that kind of thing is not going to be for the vast majority of humans. It never is. There are more Kmarts out there than there are blacksmith shops. And the, the the reality is that there could be more blacksmith shops. That's all. Yeah. Is, they, it, is, it, is it you can actually up the percentage of our meaning if we are able to up our relevance to more people? What they did in Vermont is they built a brand around yeah. what food from Vermont is. And then they told the story of how this food is being created. And they showed it being created, and they shared it being created, and they and they had access to the entire world now, where we used to before the internet. Your market as an architect was your fifty square miles around your office. Yeah. Today, your market is the entire world, and so your you can focus on building your brand, telling your story, building a platform to share that story with the entire world. And now, because, yes, you've shrinked down to a specific market, to a specific brand, this is who I am, this is what I do, but now you have access to hundreds of thousands of people to share that story with. And if we're all doing that, we all tell the story of architecture and what architects do, and you reap the rewards of telling that story and building that brand, which is exactly what you did, Duo, when you started. You told that story, you built the brand, and you reaped the rewards for it later. Financially, whether it's financially or not, You've you've created a, a a firm that has supported five people minimum for all these years. We've you've created your uh, su- to support you and your yourself, and you've been able to tell a story and have influence on the profession. I'd say that's pretty well, successful. Thanks. I mean, it, it, success is always this weird relative thing, um, but the one thing which is like crack for architects is that when you do this in the way that works, stuff's left for you to look at. Right. I mean, what's, what is one of the more amazing realities is that you do stuff, if you do it for the right motivations, it's not like you have a child and if the child doesn't go to Harvard, you disown the child. You'll have a child and the child will decide to get a tattoo that you hate and you still love the child. Well, we'll have houses or we'll have mm-hmm. buildings where there are things that are like, eh. but when I see them for the first time, and I saw a building that I hadn't seen in tw- uh, 25 years, I saw it for, 
and it was pretty good. It was actually an architectural record. It's actually a pretty good little building. But when I saw it, it was a gift because there it was. And I had devoted a couple of years of my life to help making it happen. But it was there. It's not been crushed by icebergs yet. So it's, it's, this is, and, and that is the compelling message that may be lost in a time when two dimensional screen design is taking many people into a virtual place where we once were obsessed with a real analog place of this is on top of that. And it does this and there's, and you produce a thing that you then can be surprised by 25 years later. I don't think 25 years later, when you find something in your hard drive and you look at it, you're going to have the same warm and fuzzies as I did when I saw that house. So, you know, I I do think that architects have to sort of get over it too and say, why am I doing this? And really say, what are my motivations? Am I doing this for other architects to go to cool parties and talk about clients as if they were the enemy? Or am I part of a, of a group of humans that wants to do things so you don't feel bad when a plumber tells you that your, your detail sucks? You say, well, tell me what sucks. Right. Um, and you actually, by that openness, I think you are able to end some of the fear that people have of being ignored and ripped off by architects that are essentially doing what they would want to do anyway, but using you as the vehicle. And I think that can happen. But I think, and one of the great things about the entree architect thing that is out there is that you get right to the nub of the motivations of the clients and the motivations of the architects. And, you know, there are obviously a lot of really bad motivations for consumers out there. There is true in every product, but there are also some, some bad motivations of the purveyors of the service as well. And so, Part of the really cool thing, and I think what Entree Architect does, is it lays things bare and without trolling and without snark and without being a jackass, you can actually say, well, I did this. What do you think? And right. some people will say, ick. And some people will say, well, that's cool. And that level of openness and universality that you were talking about, that, that ability to now present what you do on a huge, open and free plane of for everybody to see – that has disempowered um, the architectural media to a point where it's proliferated now to 10 or 20 really superlative, diverse sites and attrited magazines from four or five down to two. And I think you'll see that control of projection only increase. I'm hoping that the diversity of ideas happens and the informality happens. I mean, one of the things that I say in a, that piece I wrote about Architizer uh, for Architizer last week was I had a full on one hour meeting with one of the with one of the editors of one of the magazines. It was filled with great ideas, great thoughts, great everything. And it really was great in terms of what I do, but also what they do. And wouldn't this be great? And let's do this thing together. And literally, without exaggeration, not one word response after I left, (laughs) not a single syllable. And you look at that and you say, well, why is that? And of course I get the magazine. I read the magazine. I I look at it. You know, it's a wonderful magazine. There are many different things in it. And I realized that for whatever reason, I literally represent antimatter to them because whatever I would publish 
would actually, or, or, or they would publish of mine, whether it was an object or a writing or, or whether we did a conference together or whether we put a book together. I mean, these are all the ideas we were, I was presenting and we were having, and it was really pretty cool. I represent the sort of interpersonal value that makes people in media feel that we could literally go under their head, right. that we actually connect to the base market versus connect to the elite market and that the people that buy the magazine would understand that they're there for everyone else. That's not a great place to be if you're in traditional religion. You know, I'm on the mission council for uh, the Episcopal Church in Connecticut. We were, and we essentially, we are the board that runs, you know, a nominally dying mainline Protestant sect. And we have an incredibly great bishop. And the reason why he is an incredibly great bishop is because he says, boys and girls, uh, let's face it, you know, Christendom, as we knew it, as this central thing, is over. It's over. It's what we have as a vestige that is, that, is, that is proceeding with momentum that was created over the last hundred years. But it has no future path because it's only dealing right now in the ritualistic memory of what of its former importance in people's lives. Well, you could make the same case for architecture, that basically artificial intelligence comes to the fore. A lot of what architects offered is simply going to be taken off the table unless, like the bishop and me and other people in that little religious world um, offer up, is, wait a minute, you're only going to church really, really, if you're left going to church, because there's something about it that, that means something to you. And there's a higher order of value there than just having brunch or going to the soccer practice or watching um, CBS Sunday morning. There's something which is really important to you. That's why you're investing the time. What is that? And how do we take those values and project them into places that haven't experienced that before? Well, it's the same thing with architecture. It's, it's more like relevant spiritual fulfillment and less like shopping on Amazon. And, and that is the lesson that architects have to learn because it's a messy, difficult, threatening, not getting rich way of dealing with things. And you have to feel that same level of devotion that that bishop has, as I have, so that you can actually forego immediate gratification with the long-term eye on the prize of why you became an architect to begin with, which is to make beauty. And if you just think about it, I'm just here to make beauty. That's the mission. I'm not the mission. Uh, and a style is not a mission. Um, a point of view is not a mission. Even getting rich is not a mission. If you look at it in this way, that there's a greater cultural reality of beauty that you want to manifest and you are the agent of that, you will create your own value if you persist. Totally but agree. You persist. And the biggest way to persist, by the way, this is a hard thing to say, and it's indefendable. You have to be good. You have to not screw up. You have to, if you screw up, admit you screw up, learn and do better. And you have to not be defensive, not be self-congratulatory. You can never accept a compliment and say, I know. Never. You have to say, well, that was good. Let's try to better next time. If the attitude is, I'm king of the world, we're over. Yeah, if I agree. Attitude, I, and I... It is let's let's go together and make this thing place better. There's a future. 
Yeah, I, I'm an optimist duo. I, I am and, too. And, and, and I know you are. And, and um, I see the change. I see it happening already. I see it in the Entree Architect community. I see it outside of the community. Um, my generation, the next generation, absolutely. Your generation, many, many converts. Um, it's shifting from the, the Starkitect and the, and the object to making the world a better place through one yeah. project and another at, at a time. And I think the idea of, of making and creating and your hands in the dirt and, and working hard up front to build, to do what we do is also shifting. Um, yeah. And I think that, the, that, that especially young architects, if you put in the hours and the hard work way up front and not worry about the money, just do what you do and share your story and build your brand and work hard. Give give pro bono work away to the right people and do the right thing. It will come back and it will and and you can become a wealthy architect as well. But that shouldn't be your goal. But if you build that brand and become become known for something that you do the best you can do it and better than anybody else, and you share that story, the projects will come to you and the money will come to you and the business will come to you. Um, and I see that shift. I see that shift happening. I see that the openness and the honesty and the transparency within our profession happening, sharing with one another. I see that happening. Um, and I think AI is coming. It, well, I don't think it's coming. It's coming. It's, it's here. Coming. <laughs> yeah. And and I think the 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 saying saying you know that we're going to fight it and we're going to that's not going to be the solution. The solution is to embrace it. What can you yeah. do with it to make what you do better? What can you do right. to create your architecture better? If you can design and use AI to create your, your CDs, why would you not do that? You know, so, yeah. so it, it's coming and the technologies around that are coming. Uh, we need to adjust and, and embrace it and, and control it. Um, if we let other people control the technologies that, that, are, that we're going to use, um, we're going to be in trouble. Duo, we're, we're uh, way over here on time, which I love. <laughs> I'd love to have you come back to continue this conversation and we'll put, we'll have you come back many, many times. Cause I think that, that I love hearing your, your points of view and it gets me excited to hear what you're saying. Um, before we wrap up here, I want to, I want you to share one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow. There really is only one thing. And this is a, a horrible thing to tell people because it's, it's not, not defined, but it is true. You do good work. You do good work in the way you're talking about, which is you solve problems. You don't promote ideas. So you you have to get yourself out of the scenario, listen to the context and all of the inputs that are around you. Honestly, think about the options. Give the people the options. Tell people that when they want to do this, that will work this way and it will cost this much and it will do that. You could also do it that way and it will cost this much and do that thing. Give people the kind of options that will enable them to know they have control and trust that their intelligence is such that you don't have to keep anything from them or even promote anything. You have to basically say, your desire is this, another way is this, another way is this, actually my desire is that, but here are these things. And you've got to be mature enough, open enough, thoughtful enough to go through the work of providing all those options so that people can then feel that you've given them paths that they would not have without you, as opposed to an alternative reality, which they could buy like buying a new car. So 
the one rule is do good work. And that doesn't mean getting published. That doesn't mean making the perfect design. That means actually seeing the project through the site's eyes and through your client's eyes because you'll always be seeing it through your eyes. But if you can get site and client and you all in conversation, the project will ultimately be better. It might not win an award, but the project will be ultimately better. But there will be award-winning designs in amongst the stuff you do. On the web, Duo is duodickinson.com. That's the website, so people can check check them out, check you out there. Um, the blog is savedbydesign.com, so you can go check out um, all the writing that, that Duo is doing. Um, active contributor at the Entree Architect community on the Facebook, uh, on Facebook. So entrearchitect.com slash group to join us. Uh, Duo's there giving his, uh, input there as well. You can find Duo everywhere on social media. Just search Duo Dickinson. It's D-I-C-I, it's D-I-C-K-I-N-S-O-N. So Duo Dickinson, just search him there and you'll find him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Duo, is there anything else that you want to share before we wrap up here? Well, I just want to—I just want to throw something back at you, which is that it is only through things like this that things will change. And your role in creating this is one of those pivotal times when uh, a challenging situation becomes a facilitator of the future of our culture. So I'm saying to you, thank you, because without you taking the initiative to do this, it's a pain in the patootie. Let me know. I know this. It takes time, effort, energy to do what you're doing. Without your ability to do this, change would happen without our ability to have a sense that we have a role in it. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for saying that, Dua. That means a lot to me. That, that's why I do it, and it's why I keep doing it. So I appreciate uh, those words. Duo, thank you for joining us here today at Entree Architect Podcast and for sharing your knowledge with the community. Anytime you want. Anytime you want. Thanks, man. So there you go, Duo Dickinson. What a what a wealth of knowledge this man has. Duo, thank you very much for hanging out with us in this episode. And if you like this episode, this is definitely one to share. This is packed with information, packed with, with uh, ideas about where we are, ideas about where we're going as a profession. This is the one to share. EntreeArchitect.com slash episode 229 entrearchitect.com slash episode 229. Go share it with a friend. You know how to do it. Social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, email it, tell a friend around the corner. entrearchitect.com slash episode 229. Share it now. And download our free course, Profit for Small Firm Architects, right now. entrearchitect.com slash free course and start earning 20% on your architecture projects. EntreeArchitect.com slash free course. EntreeArchitect.com slash free course. My name is Mark R. LePage, and I'm an entrepreneur architect, and I thank you for being here. I encourage you to go build a better business so you can be a better architect. Love, learn, share what you know. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. 
You got anything? Yeah. Thing? I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.